there's a lot of talk around the physical resiliency of farming systems and then there's also the social and cultural resiliency around mental health and the toll that it takes, the pressures that farmers and growers face around growing the food, the hard work that it takes to produce it, the pressure that they're under to comply with regulations and also the pressures that they're facing in terms of guaranteeing labour and workers and then of course if if a storm or something hits then it's a lot of stress because if you get late snow in spring and you lose your lambs then you've lost your income for that particular season. In my book I say that we need to drink a big cup of empathy and stitch back together the rural urban divide. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So welcome to this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome. I've got Emily King, who is a food systems expert, former environmental lawyer and author of ReFood Book and founder of Spira Food System Academy. This year, we had several severe environmental catastrophes with the Auckland anniversary floods and cyclone Gabriel. It really exposed how fragile our food system in New Zealand was as it cut off food supply to many communities and affected the price of fresh fruit and veg to many New Zealanders. Food system has an obvious effect on public health as we know that access to fresh fruit and vegetables has direct effects on long-term health outcomes. How we grow, transport and sell food also has effects on the environment. I'm glad to welcome Emily King to this episode. Thank you for coming to this show, Emily. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working in the space of food systems? Morena Nina, thank you so much for having me here. Um, Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, work work obviously in food systems and it was a journey to get there. Personally, I grew up um, in rural Taranaki on a dairy farm. I later studied uh, environmental science and law and went on to be an environmental lawyer for a little while, but I, was, I, I wasn't feeling satisfied with the solutions there that were <clears throat> available to the problems that we were facing, particularly climate change, that was a strong driver for me. And at the time, around 2008 and nine, I started to really question the bigger picture around some of the topics and I felt frustrated with the, the Resource Management Act, which is what I was predominantly working under. And I set about to just change and do something that I really wanted to do and I wasn't sure what that was. I ended up studying a master's, which was a way to <laughs> change and to reskill and, and refocus a little bit. And that took me to Europe and for a couple of years I was studying abroad at universities in Hungary and Sweden and Greece and during that process the topics we were studying tend to focus on energy, water and agriculture and with distance from my homeland I started to see things slightly differently around those topics particularly agriculture as in food or the the bigger system back then it wasn't really taught as food systems but it started to be clearer for me and that took me on a pathway to my master's research and I was very curious about resiliency resiliency of systems of people and cultures and communities and also of food and I studied Uh, Sorry, I researched my master's thesis in Cuba looking at urban gardens there and interviewing gardeners around their seed practices because I felt like seeds were the very genesis of our food system and we could learn a lot to understand about a system if we could look at the seeds and the origins of it. And Cuba's fascinating. I I think it's a very unique and unreplicable study environment and place due to its lack of imports and its 
basically economic and health decline through having closed borders and things. So it's a great case study to look at what happens if you don't have trade and and food coming in and out. So what, what what is happening there in Cuba? Well now, I mean this was 2011 that I studied it, so I'm not up with the recent play, but the backstory of it is that basically when at the collapse of the Soviet Union, the borders shut and the main trade which was like sugar and trade for fuel closed and so they had no more fossil fuels they had no more fuel coming in and they also had a very obviously communist government that made everybody sort of go back to the land they were already doing that <coughs> to try and feed themselves and the result was really dire actually the the health statistics for the country there was a, a really bad like there was a lot of poor nutrition statistics, people dying of hunger and things like that. But they put in place these urban gardens at the corner of every neighbourhood and ran them and still run them with people to get access to food at the corner of their street. And so Westerners sort of listen to this and think, oh, this is an incredible solution. And what I discovered when I got there was actually it's – I mean, yes, it provides local vegetables, but um, it doesn't provide all the other things that you need. And also because just one or two skilled gardeners in that area or perhaps large operations for public procurement, like big hospital gardens and things that I visited, while they do grow a lot, it's the gardeners themselves that hold the skills around food. It's not the wider population. And so you actually have a huge reduction in ability to understand anything about the food. But they have a ration system um, for things like coffee and sugar and bread um, and huge restrictions on, on what they can eat. So it is a fascinating place to go and study, but it's definitely it's definitely an eye-opening place. And I certainly don't advocate for replicating that situation. But in terms of research it was a great place to go and think about food systems and it spun me into this journey this is why I mention it because <laughs> it got me really thinking about this topic and after I graduated I, I was still very focused on climate change though um, and I worked in um, climate change resiliency running a, a large urban food systems forum basically in a resilient cities conference and so that broaden my perspective and that was a turning point because I had an advisory board who started to talk a lot more about food systems. They taught me about food systems and I hadn't had that phrasing before. I'd come from resiliency, I'd come from a background in thinking about how you can enhance resiliency of systems to help adapt and continue on in, in a state. Yeah, so that's basically how I got there and then I haven't really looked back. I've been working in food systems ever since. When I returned to New Zealand about 10 years ago, I ran the Sustainable Business Network's Transformative Food Project for a number of years and then in 2017 I set up Spira, which you mentioned, that's my business and since then I've been training and working and giving advice to businesses and organisations all across New Zealand and I'm connected still globally to some of the wider food systems systems change work that happens and when COVID hit and lockdown hit I wrote the book because I felt what else like are you going to do with that time yeah what else <laughs> are you going to do with a couple of kids and a few lockdowns why not write a book yeah so that's really where I got to and today and yeah as the books come out and I'm trying to grow the conversation nationally around food systems change Awesome. So I'm still curious about the whole Cuba thing, right? Because Cuba is a small island. We're a small island, smallish island. We're not that small, but we're, we're an island. And how can we be more sustainable around that? Because we're so, even though we could, we grow so much food here in New Zealand, a lot of that gets shipped over overseas to expo export elsewhere. And then we import some garbage, right, to, to, our, to our own shores. And then we feed ourselves the leftovers, basically. We send overseas the best stuff. I hear time and time again, people are like, oh, I saw New Zealand lamb in the shops in, in London or whatever. And it was like being sold for cheaper than here in New Zealand. How, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, you've raised many good points there about the food system. I'll just go back to the Cuban point. Cuba is really unique and it's we can learn from it but we certainly don't want that situation what it highlighted 
to the world at the time and still to researchers today is the reliance of our food system on fossil fuels because essentially Russia cut the fossil fuels to Cuba and then because of the sanctions in the states and things they had nothing and so they literally have bullocks pulling carts to plough fields and and no cars right the cars are all state owned and yeah I mean we could do a whole podcast on Cuba. I actually went to WOMAD a number of years ago and did living books on my experiences in Cuba. <laughs> so I'm quite versed in talking about it. I don't think, I mean, I, I'm really not an advocate for this system. I think we can learn from it, but I certainly don't think we want to replicate it. So when we're looking, I mean, what it also shows not only is our reliance on fossil fuels, but it's also showing us our reliance on the interconnection of trade in our food system. And it's something that we should never take for granted and it's something that I'm a proponent of I really believe that some countries need that in order to to get food and I think that New Zealand is in an amazing position because we have a relatively small population we have a very good climate for growing food and we have diverse topography and geography in order to do that so we can technically feed ourselves and most things um not everything, but we can also export high quality food. So I think it's a strength of our nation. I want to be very clear that I'm not against exporting food and I'm not against trade. I hear people overseas saying, oh, I was at the supermarket and I saw New Zealand lamb and then it was cheaper than what we had in New Zealand or New Zealand dairy, cheaper than what we're selling it for in New Zealand. And we're so dependent on exports because we have to export so that we can import other stuff that we need in New Zealand. But why is it that... of our produce and meat is sold for cheaper overseas than in New Zealand? Well, I mean, that's the nature of global trade, that we we make high quality things and we make what we're good at, or the nation does, and sends it off. And the, there's trade agreements, obviously, that reflect that. So that's actually why, why it is that way. But then at the same time, the price of food in our own country, there's complexities there. We... We live a long way away from other places. So for, well, if you're talking about importing as well, it takes a bit to get food to us. For producing our own food, we have relatively high costs for our farmers and growers, high cost of land, wages, also inputs, like fertilizer prices are increasing. This is just looking at, I guess, produce and and fresh foods and also regulations which cost them as well to keep up with compliance so we have high costs for those inputs and and that's reflected also in the price then on top of that at the moment we have a global food challenge that is the price of food globally so it's not only New Zealanders that face this problem it's a worldwide problem every quarter it's going up for countries around the world and that's due to many factors a big factor in the last couple of years has been COVID and the impact that that's had on the supply chain. The war in the Ukraine has led to rising prices of grains due to it being Ukraine being a massive food bowl actually of production and some countries, particularly some countries in Africa, incredibly reliant on that for all of their their food so those two things COVID and the war and then on top of that there are climate change impacts affecting the production of food right now so floods droughts fires affecting countries all around the world so this is forcing a global price increase and also it's there's generally a recession in many countries which is leading to challenges as well. So it's all sort of like the perfect storm for these rising prices. And then for our own country, for our own producers, they have high costs as well. And some of the reasons that our own producers have high costs is that we have high standards. And so if you're importing food, you're importing the low labour costs and the dubious potentially human rights costs that come with other countries producing it. So they're producing food cheaper. They're producing it cheaper for a reason and that's often to do with how much they're paying their workers, what they're putting on the food, like how mechanical it is or how highly sprayed it is. Those things they can do because they don't necessarily have the standards that we have here in New Zealand. So there are real reasons for it. It doesn't make it okay. It makes it hard for people to afford food but 
yeah, it's a complex set of factors. And I guess my main takeaway there for people to understand is that New Zealand's not alone in this. I mean, we're very insular in our own countries, but everybody's going through some form of this at the moment. So yeah, it's it's very challenging to you can't really compare when you look at our product in another supermarket in, a, in another country. Yeah. Because how can they have New Zealand beef and lamb overseas selling for cheaper than what we're selling to ourselves in our own country? Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? I don't I don't actually understand all the nuances of the, the trade agreements. I'm not a trade expert, but they they can sell it that way based on the agreements that they have and the, the quotas that they're, they're importing. Because it, it seems crazy that you'd have to ship, literally ship this food overseas and all the costs associated with shipping things overseas and yet they can still sell it for cheaper than what we're seeing in our own supermarkets. Yeah, it's quite it's quite confronting for people and, and I think that it probably speaks to... It's just part of the bigger food system. So we haven't gone there yet because we've started talking about, we've come in, in through this way in this in this podcast, but actually the food system is global. It's massive, it's interconnected, and trade is a huge part of that. And I think that we need to understand the food system in order to understand some of these reasons why things are happening. And I think that it's only one part of a massive system, the cost of food in other countries compared to our own. I think we should, yeah, probably zoom out and look at look at that bigger picture a little bit to try and get there. So if we're part of this global, you know, food system, which it sounds like it's not as resilient as it, you know, has been in the past, affected by global um, climate change and geopolitical issues and stuff, do we need to be moving to a system where we're more reliant on ourselves and able to feed ourselves rather than rely being uh, rather than being reliant on other countries? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think there's a lot of benefits for increasing your own resiliency as a nation. I think you support your own growers more. You also have more vibrant local and regional economies, which is something um, we'd like to be proud of in, in our country. And when a shock hits the system, a shock like COVID, like a pandemic, or a shock like an earthquake, or a storm, or something like that, and we have a disruption to our food supply, then we can be more resilient as a nation. And so while I think we should continue to have our products out there in the global um, economy and trade, and it obviously earns a lot of money for our country, but it also it also provides um, other people with high quality food too, if you think of it from that perspective. While I think we should continue to do that, I think at the same time we need to constantly look at what we're doing as a country. And I think where we could be world leaders is actually looking at how we make a more resilient food system for ourselves. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. What does it look like? It looks like a system where you can produce food in your country that also feeds your people as well as exporting it. And people, we, we haven't really done that that well. It's got away from us probably since the 80s when we we changed the way we operate around our economics and our trade strategies, you know, for the better for a lot of parts of our country. Um, but also things things have changed in the way um, people live and we need to also make sure that that's reflected and people value um, diversity in their diet, they value um the international food that comes to our country, there are a lot of things in the wider food system that has a great benefit for us too, right, to, to have that exchange of, of foods. But we also need to make sure that we're thinking about our own resiliency, not only of our people eating food, but also of our own farmers and growers. So what's happening in the food system now that makes it not as resilient as it could be? Well, I think we should start, Nina, by actually explaining what the food system is because people don't all sit on the same page with it and it's also potentially a bit jargony for listeners. So the food system is, it starts with our environment, our soil and waterways and air, and it's how we grow food and get it to people to eat. So it's the farmers and growers, the manufacturers and processors, and then the retailers and the sellers of food, and then ultimately whether it gets 
to people or doesn't get to people and people eat the food or, or don't get it. And along the way, there's waste that comes off the system, food waste and food loss. Um, and there's also a lot of transport and logistics that happen as we move that food around our country and also around the world um, with shipping and sometimes air freight. Um, and then, so that's the system as it is, as a food chain. And then ultimately we also have what we've talked about, which is trade, politics, economics, and, and your interest also in health and culture that comes into that system. So it's a very complex system, but ultimately we're talking about the full system. So it's quite a different way of approaching a topic because people might be just familiar with their own perspective which might be going to the supermarket or if you're living on a farm it might be your farm or your or you might be a food maker and it might be thinking about where you get your food from for your ingredients so everybody sits somewhere differently in that system and when we're talking about systems change and we're talking about improving a system we need to really make sure that we're kind of defining it almost the same so that we're on the same page. And so when I talk about the food system and when I did this in, in my book, ReFood, I looked at the system, the structure of the book follows the system. It's how you grow food, how you make food, and ultimately how you nourish people with food. And so any conversation around what this could look like better nationally for us um, and as a country needs to be thinking about that full system because there's so many parts to it um, and it's complex. When we're talking about like food resiliency, what's what's happening in that space for farmers and growers? How can we make things better or easier for them? Okay, so yeah, so the lens of food resiliency is an interesting one within that because resiliency is your ability to adapt and continue on if you have a disturbance. And the main thing that's affecting our farmers and growers around that from a physical sense is changes in weather patterns. We've seen more frequent storms and drier patches are going to happen in some areas. And so there's a lot of talk around the physical resiliency of farming systems. And then there's also the social and cultural resiliency around mental health and the toll that it takes, the pressures that farmers and growers face around growing the food, the hard work that it takes to produce it, the pressure that they're under to comply with regulations and also the pressures that they're facing in terms of guaranteeing labour and workers and then of course if if a storm or something hits then it's a lot of stress because if you get late snow in spring and you lose your lambs then you've lost your income for that particular season so farming's always fraught with conditions and it's always challenging I mean that's the nature of the game but we we talk about it I think you can talk about it in a different way when you're looking at that happening occasionally versus that happening every summer and the predictability of weather events changing with climate change impacts. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure on farmers and growers. I'm really interested to hear your take on the, the, the agricultural sector because I think when we talk about things like the environment, climate change and all that, a lot of the conversation people give farmers I think a really, really hard time or some people sort of try to capitalise on the whole pro-farmer versus pro-climate things as if they're two separate things, as if they're mutually exclusive. It's my understanding that farmers are people who work on the land. They probably have some of the biggest investment in making sure that we have healthy environments, healthy soils, healthy animals, healthy plants and all that kind of stuff. So how can we move to a place where we help farmers and growers be sustainable with their practice but also productive in the sense that it has good farmer well-being as well as good health healthy food that's accessible for all of us? Yeah, it's a great question, Nina. So firstly, there are many amazing farmers doing world-leading practice in our country. I think they get a hard rap. I think um, it's actually a little unfair. Farmers do feed us. Um, <laughs> ultimately, it's, it's the start of the food system. It's where the food comes from. And we should be supportive and rewarding of those best practices and proud of them as well. And... And I think, I think that's a big part of it because I really believe that both sides of that, if there's any disagreement there, I feel like empathy is a, a, good, <laughs> a good way through because there's challenges for both, both, both aspects of that. And we can't claim to be the world's best um, producers in terms of sustainability, but we're definitely up there as a country. Um, and of course there are laggards within that like there are any sector and there are people that are not 
potentially up with compliance, it's not everyone, but that gives the whole sector a bad name when actually we have some really innovative and amazing farmers doing great things in terms of their energy efficiency, in terms of their growing practices, their stocking rates, their waterway protection and all of those things. And I think that we should be really proud of that. I think we've got it wrong somehow in our conversation around climate and I certainly do not have the answer to this, but we haven't managed to get it right and I'm not exactly sure how we navigate that and how we do that in a way but yeah it's definitely for me a big question mark around why we haven't managed to have our farmers on board and supportive with climate change policies and I don't say that naively I say that genuinely I I really wonder what we could do differently in order to continuously support the best practice that our farmers have and it's extremely it's an extremely complex topic and because do your do your parents still farm or my dad lives on his farm yeah so I mean I yeah I grew up on a farm I understand the mindset that farmers have around this and how hard working they are how connected they are to the environment because they're out in the elements every single day and they're reliant on them for what they do yeah, but at the same time, we're in a whole a whole different time now. We're in 2023. By the 2030s, things are going to be quite different for farming. And the expectation from our trading partners now brings us along with these obligations around climate change, around environmental standards. And yeah, it's a really interesting time for farming. Yeah, because also there's something about Nestle wanting to only buy dairy if it was more sustainable or more yeah, that's right. so or something. Not only is it trading partners putting into trade agreements, regulations and require, well, requirements sorry, around certain environmental practices and climate change, it's also, yeah, some food businesses are starting to demand it. So there's a lot of headwinds have changed there for farmers and many of them are listening to that and I think we should be celebrating those that are and also understanding why those that aren't are finding it hard and it's very different these days farming isn't small scale family farming really we're talking about mass produced large farms with big operations and lots of workers and managers and and this sort of thing and people are also often thinking about dairy only but while we do have a lot of dairy farmers 10 12,000 however many it is it's more than that farmers are also our horticulturists it's also horticulture it's also sheep and beef there's also deer there's also many other sectors and they often don't get a voice or a sound because of you know, the the narrative around dairy whether that's pro-dairy or anti-dairy or whatever I think it's understanding that the diversity and the strength of our food system in New Zealand is that we have a variety of farmers and growers variety of crops arable land as well what does being sustainable as a farmer what does that look like and there's a lot of people throwing around this idea of regenerative farming and I'm not sure whether that's the, the right way to go or is it scalable that kind of thing I think terms get used and confused and slightly jargony around things. There's definitely a movement globally around regenerative agriculture as a way through for having farmers produce good quality food while enhancing (coughs) soil life and soil biodiversity and also their own mental health. A lot of farmers practicing regenerative agriculture talk about the freedom that they feel from having to be reliant on big fertilizer bills and big debts with, with some of those things. Of course that's case by case but I think Yeah, in the global agricultural situation at the moment, there's definitely a big conversation going on around that. And some of the big food companies are picking up on it as the the panacea of this going to solve all of our, our woes. And yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I think it's definitely a good thing if we have better practice around some of our soil and waterways. And so what is regenerative farming? Yeah, so regenerative agriculture, there's a whole... 
<laughs> so first of all, it's a little tricky because they don't like to define it okay. as, a, as a strict definition <laughs> because it's a series of practices that make it up, which it doesn't help the layperson trying to understand I am it. trying to understand. Yeah, but it does help them because they can be flexible with their definition. But it, ultimately it comes down to soil health and diversity of life within the soil as a living system, diversity of crops that's grown. So instead of maybe growing just grass, they might grow 50 different flowers and sunflowers and things for cattle to eat that will diversify the diet of the animal, but also the soil microbiology. And it's a very soil focused thing. It doesn't com- it's, doesn't completely rule out fertilizers and it doesn't completely rule out pesticides herbicides and fungicides and that completely but generally they usually are reduced. If we keep farming and farming and farming and don't do anything to return nutrients to the soil then our food becomes less nutritious is that right? Yeah there's arguments around it becoming less nutritious the soil definitely declines and and won't go on providing forever so what this is looking at is regenerating and rebuilding and leaving behind a better thing than what you started from than continuously taking from it and yeah diversifying what you grow but also diversifying plant yeah animals and also not tilling up the soil so it's yeah it's a it's a different way of farming and and the proponents of it suggest that it's not only better for the soil but it also absorbs more carbon it's really challenging in practice to measure that and so I think we'll see in the next 10 years science catch up a little bit it's really hard for a farmer to measure the change in soil carbon being absorbed every single year like it's actually a quite a complex thing to measure it's not if you just plant a tree and then you can estimate how much that tree would absorb of carbon so in the climate change narrative it comes in um, but it's also still early days I would say not to say that it necessarily doesn't do that it's just that the science is still coming in so yeah farming offers a lot of amazing things that can be done to help produce good food Yeah, so there are solutions there, but farming is only one part of the food system and I think that it's an important part, it's obviously where our food starts and throughout that system, making food, processing it and getting it to people to be eaten, so much more happens after the food leaves the farm gate. The farmer gets a price for that, but actually the hundreds, dozens, however many, depending on the product, people in the middle between that primary product getting to it right like yeah. for example a, th- a, th- a thing that's talked about a lot this year as yeah. well is about the supermarket duopoly they've even put in what is it like a super a grocery commissioner or whatever to look at the system and wh- where are the holes where's the money going and how can we regulate the sector so what is happening in that middle space where the 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 food is the food has been grown and now it's in the middle where people are going to process it and transport it and then sell it what, what's yeah. happening in that space so i mean it leaves the farm game obviously and depending on what it is can go anywhere in the world and if it's a if it's an apple or something in some ways it's relatively straightforward because it stays in its state but if it's an ingredient that's going to be added to something it can end up in any form in any country really it's a the options are endless potentially so you start to then see the bigger global supply chain kick in, logistics and freight and transport and packaging is a big part of that too because you want to have a safe and secure product that reaches that market but as a result of that you end up with a lot of packaging and processing happening as well. So it really depends because there are thousands of foods and thousands of thousands of final products, right? So it depends on what you're actually looking at but ultimately there's a lot of transport, logistics, there's food loss and waste that happens along that way yes and you know there's this um business um that i've seen called like wonky box and i've tried them once and it was great you got a lot of stuff but then um i went back to soupy because wonky box they don't come and pick up your boxes every time so i'm like i don't want like another cardboard box every time they drop it off but i think it's a really good idea to take all the 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 food that's been labeled as not to like supermarket grade or whatever and find a home for it because food waste is a big issue for climate as well isn't it yeah i mean you're raising big things here too yeah loss and waste I mean loss usually happens at the farm and there's solutions there often it's I don't know turn if it's broccolis maybe it's turned back into the soil or something like that in New Zealand most of our food waste happens 
at the fa- at the fridge at the house or the food service level and less further on in a in other economies it's a lot more food loss around harvests because you might have you might have not a secure supply chain where you might not have the truck arriving or there might be a roadblock or a storm or a civil war or no safe place or secure place to store the grain or something like that so new zealand it's relatively and it's a trend developed countries tend to have more food waste at the household level end of it and then developing countries it tends to be more around harvesting um, so because recently in the Auckland area they've they've introduced a food compost pickup sort of thing yeah. or food waste which is quite interesting because I think they take it and then they take it over to some processing facility in Rotorua where it gets pre- uh, processed for, I think they, they collect biogas and then they make some sort of liquid fertilizer to return to the soil and we've always been doing bokashi because I think bokashi you can take more stuff in. And I think part of it, the reason why I did Bokashi was because I realised we were wasting a lot of food in the fridge. And I was like, oh, I need to feel a little bit less bad about myself. So yeah. instead of, I don't know, I, I try to reduce my food waste, but I'm like, you know what? Sometimes it happens and at least I can do something about it. And so I Bokashi and then I put it in my parents' compost back in Walkworth because they... They've basically got a semi-urban garden in their own backyard, which is great. Dad was telling me that he's growing all these passion fruit. They always have heaps of cherry tomatoes. They're, they're growing all sorts of things, which is which is really great. So I'm like, at least my food waste goes somewhere. I know exactly where it's going. Yeah, that's quite the logistical effort to ship your bakashi up there. I mean, bakashi is a, it's a, you add a, an enzyme that helps break down and you put it anaerobically into the soil. So you dig a pit and you pour that compost into it, close it up and, it enhances the soil in situ compared to a compost bin where it might sit for a while and of course rodents and whatnot love to get in there. By the time the products get to the supermarkets, they've been through so many things, right? And that's often, it's the most common point of sale for people is to go to the store to buy their food from the supermarket. And so we're challenged by that in New Zealand because essentially there's there's two main Providers of supermarkets. The duopoly. The duopoly, we call it (laughs) quite openly now. We used to call it that slightly secretly, but now I feel like we're allowed to say that. So Woolworths, which is Australian owned, and then Foodstuffs, which is a collective of New Zealand locally owned and operated brands of stores like New World, Pack and Save, Fresh Choice and others. Is Fresh Choice under there? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, there's a few others. Um... That come under it. And so basically, yeah, we're in a situation where we need to break that up because that is a big part of there's people that don't have access to food, but yet we've got these large supermarkets making um, millions. And in the case of Woolworths, it's shareholders in Australia that are making a lot of money off of the people in New Zealand. And so there's a lot to be done there to break that up. You mentioned um, initiatives like Wonky Box and Soupy. These are independent food providers that are trying to break up and solve some of these social and food issues by setting up different ways of operating and getting a vegetable delivery box from from them is one way to support businesses outside of the duopoly if you are in a position to afford to do that. For a lot of people there's no choice. We also have food deserts where we have no easily accessible healthy food including supermarket options for people and people also live really rurally in New Zealand and it's a long way to drive to get to the supermarket and that also affects how we buy things and what we buy because we can't just pop to the shop or get a vegetable delivery box of fresh fruit and vegetables so we have a lot of factors there to think about I think in terms of the system and yeah so the system's complex there's way more to it than just farming and growing once it leaves the farm gate it's putting money in the hands of many other people along the way and then ultimately when you're paying for that food you're paying for that process you're paying for all those different people and places and businesses that handled that food to get it to you and people I feel like people kind of forget about all the food businesses that happen and focus just on farmers and growers. They're providing the primary ingredients for all of that, whether it's meat or plant ingredients, but ultimately they all come from the farm and where it's grown. And I think that we forget about 
all of those jumps in the chain that happen, all of that packaging, all of that potential waste, all of that transport, all of the fossil fuels that happen to get food to your plate. And then, of course, food doesn't necessarily get to everybody's plate. So that's when we start to think about how the food system influences the other systems, which you're so good at interviewing and talking to people about on your podcast, these other systemic issues that happen. And so what I try to do in my work is to give the food system a voice in those conversations as well because there's there's a lot to be said for understanding that system and visualizing it when we're coming up with solutions to some of these big crunchy topics that we've been touching on this morning. Which so is, where to next then? How can we make things better? Well, there's so many great things we can do. I think the first step is understanding that system and I know that's not for everyone, but It's big and it can be overwhelming. So I always say sit with that overwhelm a little bit and just think about where your sphere of influence is. So everybody has a role to play in the food system. That's why food is such a wonderful thing. I think there's lots of choices that can be made with that purchasing power to understand where your food is coming from, who's growing it, um, how packaged it is, what the ingredients are. Obviously, I wrote a whole book about this, so I recommend you go and read that <laughs> to think it's about re-food. it. Yeah, yeah. But one of the key things that I say in ReFood is actually just simplify it for yourself. If we stop the complexities and stop all of the signals that get sent to us from our food environments and from marketers and from all of these things that make us think that we need that convenience food or we need that addiction or that option, I think we can be powerful in our and our purchasing power ourselves. So, yeah, yeah I everyone... think it's really interesting you bring that up because I just saw an article the other day and it was about big tobacco and it was about how in the 1980s up until, up until 2001, someone did a study on all these food businesses or food brands that were actually owned by big tobacco during that time period. And it was really interesting because someone did a study and showed that actually if a food business was owned by big tobacco, there was a over 30% chance more that they would be foods that were hyper palatable so food that is essentially engineered to be addictive food that's high in sodium carbohydrates fats things like pop tarts and oreos things like that and it just goes and you just think oh my goodness this this obesity epidemic that we have in western countries it's completely artificial somebody did this to us it's not something that we did for ourselves yeah well i mean i haven't seen that article and I haven't heard about the tobacco connection but I'm I'm not surprised it's an addiction cycle right it's an addictive wheel and I'm I'm sure there's applications to, to both that they can, they can do so yeah the, the food system is the way it is um, for a good reason and that's basically global food and so we've we've come in to this to this part of the conversation through talking about the food journey I guess of how we get it to our plate but ultimately if the purpose of the food system is to feed people then it's not working and if the purpose is to feed people healthy and affordable food it's definitely it's not definitely working not. and if it's to feed people sustainably grown ethically sourced good food then and affordable prices then it's also not working and and the challenges that we face in this in this food system around health statistics around obesity around healthy options to food and around access to food these these are almost like a cookie cutter approach in every country and even though we've got cultural differences between our countries the challenges are really similar all around the world because of global big food and because it comes from the same place and and I've thought about this long and hard and I just come back to it's got to be money and greed that means that people design these systems in this way and a lot of people are blindly following it along because we have everything like designed in a way that supports it including our food environments and when I wrote ReFood I was really confronted by the food environments. I knew about it but I didn't really understand just how much the physical and built environment in our communities, in our neighbourhoods and then even inside our supermarkets are designed to make us buy food in a certain way. Right, because the way that the supermarkets, they pick the food. Yeah, on like the layout. The, 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 the yeah. ends of the aisles to be like, oh, this is like, this is well, like what's Well, that's also the layout of the supermarket is also who's paying for what real estate shelf in the supermarket. That's right, And yeah. obviously big global food companies have those inroads and those those better 
aisles someone said to me you should walk around the store backwards on your knees if you want to find like <laughs> the smaller healthier brands and whatnot and and to a certain extent that's kind of kind of what you can do but it's it's not only the supermarket environment and how that's designed it's it's online now it's how we market it at it's also on our social media it's on everything and so when I talk about people's fears of influence you might not realize that in your job you're complicit in this food system in the built environment or in the online environment and and how that's influence, influencing people's choices so yeah when we're looking at an example like you've you've just given around this global food and behind it being a big tobacco company with addiction philosophies it's it's unsurprising to me and I think that we're in as for well this health crisis around healthy food and and availability of it and there's so much of it that comes into this other sphere yeah that so I want to bring it back to Cuba so what did you learn there because obviously <laughs> obviously like Cuba at that time when you were there um, or at, leading up to that anyway it was a lot more shut off from the rest of the world or it has been a lot more shut off from the rest of the yeah, world in the, right. in, in the yep. recent-ish past right yeah. and so they've had to be more self-reliant they didn't have the influences of big food I suppose if they, if they were so cut off from the rest of the world. So I guess that's almost like another extreme. So what did you learn from that where they had to be self-reliant? They didn't have big food meddling oh, in there. I mean, their health, their health statistics, well, it's interesting because they have quite a strong medical and doctor philosophy. That's a big part of what they do. So medically they have, yeah, they have a different kind of health system. But from the, the food standpoint, it's, it's not healthy. It's really hard work. People are really in a in a bad way from this the highly processed um foods that you can still get um it's really expensive to buy food in Cuba it's um really challenging things like pasta at the time in 2011 that's that would be you know that's a massive treat I tried to find cheese I don't know what I was thinking I went to six stores there's no cheese um do they have their own dairy industry at all or no, no, so really. everything so yeah. a lot of their food well, they had do, to be imported, they have st- everything state owned and state run so everything is state owned and state run but then there's the black market for everything so someone may go to another country and come back and they're bringing in chips and candy and selling it and people are getting access to it or Jeez. clothing or whatever so yeah but in terms of the daily life, I mean, people have ration, had ration cards. And this is in 2011. Yeah, that they would be going to get yeah their their food, their hard, long sticks of white bread, and they they did have some cheese, of course. They have some products. It's it's not all all doom and gloom, but most of it's done on a ration basis. And the health statistics, it's I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that great. The food, there's not a variety of diet. Those years under they called it the special period but it was awful for them and that's why I'm massively not a fan of that system <laughs> yeah. right even though it's great that's they put vegetable gardens yeah. in it's fascinating it's fascinating to think about it and it all comes back to what do you do if you don't have if you don't have oil what if you do if you don't have fossil fuels and and everything in the food system is completely tied to fossil fuels all of our global trade all of our fertilizers are made through I mean, is it possible to move past that Oh. Is it possible? I mean, there's, there's, we're, all, we're all talking about like EVs here. The, the, and, the you know. scale and the, the impact and the, no, not not to live in a way that we think we live now. If I think about it, then it would be extreme disruptions, extremely difficult and really challenging. And, and while we would innovate and things would be creative and we might be in a good position here because we have diverse landmass and relatively small population yeah I think the struggle would be something of epic proportions that no one has ever really completely got their head around we have this model of mass-produced global monoculture agriculture which feeds a lot of people yes it's come at the extent of our environment our indigenous people our cultures and our knowledge and know-how of producing our own food but it does to an extent, actually feed a lot of people. And the arguments around that are relatively strong, no matter how you feel about it, if you're in favour of it or not. Um, There are, you know, strong things there, whether you think it's healthy food or not, you know, ultimately people do get food from it. Um, And how we would bounce back as a society without it would be crazy, I think. It would be interesting. And, but yeah, I mean, 
there are people that have entire farming operations running on electric vehicles and really? electric tractors. Like Interesting. the amazing cherry orchard down in central Otago at the moment. That's, I think, the first fully electric farm. Wow. We have some really great innovation there. And, and don't get me wrong, all of those things are incredible. But if you're looking at the full food system and you're looking at like how would we feed people without oil? Well, we could because we used to do that a very long time ago. <laughs> but it would be very different from what you used to today and I think those experiences in Cuba are are very strong for me I mean obviously I've had many other food systems experiences as well not only that one but yeah it's interesting to frame it in the context of that and think about it in that way because it certainly would not be easy yeah Mm. And I was speaking with somebody who lives in Waiheke Island and they were talking about food systems and that there's some talk about making Waiheke Island in itself more food resilient. Is that something that you're aware of or anything like that in terms of like them trying to make themselves more, I guess, sustainable and resilient in the case that Waiheke Island (laughs) gets cut off from the rest of the Uh, the country? Yeah, I mean, there's a group. Yeah, so Waiheke is an interesting case study in itself just because it's an island off of an island and it's reliant on one freight ship for all of its food so you pay more because you pay for the freight on top of it and the fuel is also traveled that way so that's also expensive on top of everything else so yeah there's there's a tension there between availability and affordability of land and housing so what would have been productive land for growing is is housed now mainly and it's also steep clay soil which is relatively difficult to grow on and it's also requires water and most people are on tank water unless you have a bore to irrigate so um, it's a complex place to grow food but it's possible and when we look at food resiliency there we're looking at how we can strengthen our resiliency in times of emergency so Mm. with cyclone gabriel we were we just missed a bullet really um, and there will be one that comes our way with storms and things and we just were were lucky that it didn't hit and we weren't cut off. So if we are cut off, there's there's a whole movement of us looking at how we can be more resilient in the face of that and how we can combine forces so that we're not reliant on Auckland Council to try and solve our food problems at that time. There's also only one supermarket, which is a countdown on the island. I mean, there are a couple of smaller four squares but, and smaller food independent operators, but for the most part, it's a monopoly within a duopoly on top of a, a freight. So, although there are other providers that do deliver food from the mainland there, um, vegetable boxes and other supermarkets, um, but then, of course, you're still paying for freight to get there. So, yeah, it's a complex one, and all of our islands... Like, is there much growing and farming on Waiheke Island? Other than the vineyard industry, <laughs> uh, there are there are passionate backyard gardeners. There are community gardens. There are yeah, there are some good growers and there are some good things. There are large privately held farming operators with sheep and beef. That's not really for the island. So we no, we're a long way off being resilient in terms of food production on, on Waiheke. Waiheke is just one island. We have Aotea, Great Barrier. We have We have so many islands off New Zealand with people living on them. So it's also something to think about in terms of our resiliency and how we get food there. Yeah. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And it was an interesting thing you brought up before about Waiheke Island and um, building houses on land that was once once farmed. Because I think it's an issue that we're seeing in Auckland as well. When we're having this urban sprawl, we have this, what's the word? Like we just had this reluctance to build up. And mm. so we're with urban planning, we kept building out and out and out further. And we're, we're building out to places like Pukekoe with the land being some of the most fertile soil in the Auckland region. And we're paving that over with concrete. Yeah, I mean, it's encroaching on highly productive land at the expense of our growers who feel that pressure. And 
it's a real challenging situation for multiple generations of growers that are then faced with what do you do? Do you sell for housing, which is giving you millions for your land, or your onions, which are not? So yeah, it's it's a challenging one, and we need to do more to protect our growers and to protect our soils because once it's paved, it's gone. And I think that's a a a focus that we have soil strategies but we don't necessarily have food strategies around around that and so looking at our country how can we protect and ensure that we're looking after our food bowls because ultimately if we're looking at resiliency that is where we grow the food that is how we are resilient yeah. it seems like a no-brainer right that the the land that is the most fertile for growing should be kept growing. It just seems like a no-brainer. But I actually want to kind of bring it back a little bit to before you talked about um, working within the Resource Management Act. What were the what were the issues when you were working amongst that? Because that's like a, a hot topic, I think, this coming up this year. <laughs> yeah, I haven't worked under the Resource Management Framework since 2009, <clears throat> and it's changed a lot since then. So yeah, I mean, we have, we have a framework there. And I guess... I haven't really thought about the RMA in terms of its overlap or underlap with food. I mean, we have planning provisions with for our highly productive land that have come out and soils. So we do have we have um, protections for aspects of the food system, but we don't have the full food system in mind when we're making regulations right so I guess the food system and the food environment that we talked about as well mm -hmm. I think we briefly talked about it but in terms of the food deserts and all that that's all part of I guess urban planning and that sort of has an interplay with what we do with um, land do we keep it as farmland or do we rezone it for housing because people need to be (laughs) people need homes as well but then where do we build those homes and I feel like that's kind of related as well yeah and it's a it's a big tension and but with the food deserts like they're not they're not necessarily planned that way. I mean, they are and they aren't, right? Your food environment is somewhat planned by planners, but we're not necessarily thinking about the economic or the other factors that are going on for people in their lives when they're living in those areas that might be more deprived economically and don't have access to the healthier options or or they might have yeah, unhealthy options available, which is obviously a, a problem if that's the only option that you've got there. And I, I feel like we can at least, you, you talked about, and I think in some of your articles about food swamps. Yeah, yeah, there's food swamps. But what I do talk about, which I really love this term, and I want to be more positive about this because the food system brings us great hope and amazing opportunities, despite <laughs> us traversing pretty much every single challenging issue within it this morning. The Sorry, the food haven term, which I really like, coined by um, some professors in Auckland, looking at pockets of hope within our communities that have really great things happening. And I think what we can and should do when we're looking at this part of our food system, which is ultimately how people are getting food or or not getting food, and in how we're designing communities for that purpose or not designing communities for that purpose, and looking at that broader planning framework in which that sort of sits. These food havens can give us hope. And what we can do is look at where we have these opportunities within our communities to create them and how we can connect people across these topics in a better way with food. And so community hubs that are feeding people or growing their own food, empowering people to be more independent with their own food and more resilient with it, not only growing their own but maybe accessing affordable locally produced food. These sorts of pockets of things happen in all of our all across our country. We Can you have, give us some examples of where it's working really well? Oh yeah, in Auckland there's a really great example of um, Papatuanuku Marae in Mangarei in South Auckland and they have some really great amazing things happening with growing food, with feeding people, training people up. They use the Huaparakori which is the Māori Organics Framework system. They also have a connection with getting fish heads and that would otherwise be discarded and waste and then redistributing them to people to be cooked up and used as a food source and yeah I mean there's endless examples across our country there's because part uh, of it with the whole teaching people how to grow their own food that part of it is just allowing or part of it is just teaching people to understand where food comes from yeah right? and and I think it's not about everybody having to grow their own food because that's completely impractical and won't work for everybody really it is I mean some people are so far away from the resources and the the literacy in themselves or the ability to to do that I mean it's it's 
it's almost like a bizarre thing that we immediately think that that's what we have to do to get there. It's like some people need pots and pans and a lot of people are growing up in motel rooms with only access to a microwave, if that. So we're, we're really at, everybody's at different levels in our country and our communities in terms of their ability to cook food, grow food, make food. And so empathy comes in there to understand everybody's different situations. And so those that, that can and are able to try and grow food, well, that's incredible and it is empowering um, and it is a great way to feed your family and your community if you can. But it's also recognising that people can't all do that. And so community hubs that help um, provide food at an affordable price or rescue otherwise food, food that would otherwise be wasted, these sorts of initiatives that happen across our country provide opportunities for people to tap into those parts of the food system and, and access food. And there's just more and more of them popping up. Oh, that's um, really good to hear. Which give us hope, right? But it's some of it's ambulance at the bottom of the cliff kind of stuff, which isn't ideal. And it leads into bigger conversations around other systemic issues as to why we, we have people not being able to get food in the first place. And access to food is a topic in itself. Affordability, whether you can physically get it, how you make it once you get it, all these things. There's many, many aspects to it that I think can be taken for granted and the nuances of it can be kind of lost as people just sort of broad brush say oh you need to grow your own vegetables. We can outsource the growing of our vegetables to people who are specialists in doing it and that's what allows us to have scientists and lawyers and doctors and nurses and whatever is because we're yeah. not busy doing the growing well, of the vegetables so we can do agri- some other stuff. Yeah, it's our <laughs> agricultural system. It's how we've designed it. And we have to think really hard about that, right? It's it's a really great thing to bring in when we're looking at society. We have all these potentially idealistic ideas of what this food systems change or this post-growth thing could look like. But then you've got reality because do people actually want to stop doing their convenience shopping or whatever it is and actually do these things? Well, no, not everybody does. And so it's the, the realities of some of these discussions are really confronting. And I think they're really big conversations that we can have. And I think not just the grow your own food is a good example of that because it's often... Not, even, not everyone has a garden, well, not right. everyone has the time, yeah, not everyone well, has the skills. Yeah, the know-how, the skill, the yeah. understanding, the ability. But I think, yeah, at the crux of it, access to healthy food is a public health priority. It's an mm. economic priority. Well, and the, the right to food is the, the right human to food, right yeah. to food, right? It is a human right, yeah. and we all have that. And so are we upholding that human right as citizens through how we are operating in our sphere of influence? I think it's a question we should all be asking ourselves. I think if we don't fix it, right, it's... It's, yeah. it's going to cost us in the long term if it's not if, if it's you know if it's not costing us now it's going to cost us in the long term. Yeah, and these problems are not going away. And they're not going to get easier, and they're not going to get cheaper, right? So things just continue along, and we need to find a way to navigate through the headwinds of change around climate change storms, fires, droughts, global food supply, disruptions from war, all of these really big, heavy things, (laughs) economic recessions. How do we navigate through this in a way where we maintain our own mental health, (laughs) that of our communities, um, but also our (laughs) our resiliency as people and just look back generations and see that for four grandparents, did this in times much harder and people did and some didn't but did survive and how we build that resilience in it's wired in us as humans to survive and to survive in our food system and I think I like to think there's enough people savvy enough out there that can help make that happen to make up for those that aren't in a position to but it's they're definitely big conversations and I I don't have all the answers at all to it. I like to help. What? Didn't you write like a whole book about it? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a book about the problems. <laughs> it's up to everyone else to come up with the answers. No, I, I really want to just, I think the first thing is understanding it, right? This is incredible. A few years ago, there wouldn't have been a podcast looking at food systems, right? People still don't know what that term is. I think busting the myth around jargon and understanding what it is provides us with an opportunity to come up with some solutions. And so I work 
with organizations and businesses on this around the country and a lot of a lot of it comes down to and I say this often about empathy but it's true because there's different parts of the system that need to come together and to come up with solutions and answers and to have robust and frank dialogues with each other on perspectives that might be different um, to come up with solutions and I think you know this is why I welcome coming in and speaking to you because we're you know coming from different perspectives perhaps from other systemic health and societal issues but bringing the food system in and having that voice is really important right because if we're going to affect change and we're going to make change we need to have different people with different perspectives coming around the mm-hmm. table um, and so I wrote ReFood to continue to try and catalyze that change but to get people to actually understand a little bit more about the food system to give it a voice, to give it a visual so that people can think about what it looks like and then to question some of the things that we just take for granted in our day and ultimately try and take some action because if we just think about it, we end up with overwhelm or inaction and all of those things. But there are different ways and you, like I keep coming back to, your sphere of influence is, is really different for every person and you know yours might be your podcast sharing information this way someone else's might be that they work in a marketer marketing agency and they hadn't realized that they're actually enabling unhealthy food environments for the last 24 years um, until they heard this right like you know your sphere of influence is potentially bigger and more in front of you than you realize yeah yeah So we're going to wrap it up because I've um, taken up enough of your time, but I'm going to close with one last question. We always do these fun questions at the end of the podcast. And we've been going on and on and on and on about fresh food and fresh vegetables and all this kind of palaver. But for you, what is your favourite takeaway fast food? (laughs) I don't don't really... I don't or what's really your like have. guilty pleasure when it comes yeah, to food? I, mean, I I like sushi if it's available because I don't have sushi available. I mean, where I live, we don't have fast food options really. I mean, <laughs> apart from maybe fish and chips, which is is everywhere, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I like a good I like a good sushi if I can find it. Um, Do you have a favorite sushi shop? Oh, there's the. It's the one in Commercial Bay, like the OG sushi place. They do some nice sushi. <laughs> <laughs> and your favourite sushi item? Um, probably the the avocado and tofu option there. They do a good vegetarian variety, which I enjoy. Um, vegetarian sushi, that sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, it probably is for some. Um, yeah, I'm kind of failing on the takeaway thing. I'm not a big fan of, of takeaway, but I must admit I do. I like going in and sitting down for different foods. And so, yeah, I mean, any anything with diverse flavors and... What, KFC's um, not good enough? <laughs> <laughs> they apparently have a lot of flavor. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm kind of not, yeah, I'm probably a little... A little boring in that regard, <laughs> and we don't have a lot of takeout options on Waiheke. This um, is true. This is, is true. A, which I personally find great because the food environments are. Your yeah, kids aren't asking you for happy meals. Not yet. <laughs> no, no, and I'm probably yeah, just over twenty years since I had any kind of takeaways like that. Wow. Yeah, I wow. probably was about yeah. Yeah, coming up 20 years since I would have had anything like that. Take that, big food. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely take that. I love food, don't get me wrong. I love dining out and and eating tasty, yummy food. I just don't buy into supporting global food that's really messed it up for a lot of people in their lives. And yeah, I don't don't subscribe to supporting them with my hard-earned dollars. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Nina. Thank you. It's been lovely to chat to you today and, yeah, just to go through some of these things. I've really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titter to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. 